Bienvenidos and welcome to Crónicas de la Raza, La Raza Chronicles. Tonight's program is produced by Nina Serrano, Julieta Kuznir, Vilma V, Vanessa Bohm, with special help from Kayla Mulholland. In tonight's program, we take a look at black and brown unity through the perspective of youth. We'll speak with the organization 67 Sueños about their upcoming event, lifting the voices of black and brown youth through arts, spoken word, and music. We'll also speak with local organizer Nancy Hernandez about the actions marking the anniversary of the unjust killing of the young Alex Nieto and the struggle to end police brutality. And we'll end tonight's program with an interview and music with local musician Diana Gameros, who will be performing this Friday, March 27th. All this and more, but first, we begin with the news with our own Vilma V. Buenas noches. This is Vilma V with Noticias Sin Fronteras, news headlines without borders from America Latina for the week ending March 22nd. Colombia. Last week in Havana, Cuba, a new round of peace talks began between the Colombian government and the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, known as the FARC. As part of this round of talks, the FARC announced that it will begin a process of demining certain areas of Colombia, particularly those areas where the civil population is directly affected. Thus far, a ceasefire agreement has not been reached between the government and the rebel group. Also, in an 800-page report commissioned by the Colombian government and the FARC, to ascertain the root causes of the over 50-year conflict, it was revealed that U.S. soldiers and contractors have not been prosecuted for sexual crimes against Colombian women and girls. The reason given for this lack of accountability was diplomatic immunity. Renan Vega of the Pedagogic University in Bogota said, quote, There is abundant information about the sexual violence which occurred under absolute impunity because of the bilateral agreements and the diplomatic immunity between Colombian and U.S. officials. Brazil. The public prosecutor in Brazil has formally charged the treasurer of the ruling Workers' Party, Joao Vacari, with corruption. This is in addition to the dozens of others who have been charged in the ongoing corruption scandal at the state-owned oil company Petrobras. Polls indicate that Brazilian President Dilma Rousseff's popularity has declined dramatically since the corruption scandal came to light. However, President Rousseff has been cleared of any involvement in the corruption scheme. Rousseff said, quote, If they want to investigate, they will investigate, and whoever is responsible will pay for what was done. Chile. Last weekend, hundreds of people in Chile attempted to stop the ordination ceremony of Bishop Juan Barros, accusing him of covering up the sexual abuse of young boys for many years. Protesters wore black and tried to block the ceremony both inside and outside of the church. Protesters accused Barros of using his position in the church to try to deter an investigation into the actions of his mentor, Fernando Caradima. Back in February of 2011, the Vatican found Father Caradima, who was 81 at the time, guilty of sexually abusing children. Barros was appointed to bishop by Pope Francis in January of this year. Christian Democrat Congressman Sergio Ojeda said, quote, I believe the Catholic Church is not listening to its people. He called for Bishop Barros to show dignity and resign from the position. 
Most of the local authorities and the top leaders of the Catholic Church in Chile chose not to attend the ordination ceremony. Mexico. The new Mexican Supreme Court Justice Eduardo Medina Mora has been confirmed despite widespread criticism that Mora is unfit for the position. Mora, a former Mexican Attorney General and Ambassador who has close ties to Mexican President Enrique Peña Nieto, is accused of being the architect behind Mexico's so-called War on Drugs. The War on Drugs has resulted in thousands of people being killed or disappeared since 2006. Samuel Kenny, human rights defender with the Justice and Democratic State Foundation, said, quote, There was no public debate, not just on his history in the area of human rights, but there was no discussion as to whether he could fulfill the position and what would be his position as justice. Many unresolved cases from Mora's time as attorney general will ultimately come before the Mexican Supreme Court as Mora's appointment expires in 2030. Paraguay. According to a Gallup poll released last week, for the first time in 10 years, the top 10 happiest countries to live in are all in Latin America. The top three countries were Paraguay, Colombia, and Ecuador, based on Gallup's Positive Experience Index, which has a margin of error of 1%. After the top three, Guatemala, Honduras, Panama, Venezuela, Costa Rica, El Salvador, and Nicaragua, in that order, make up the top 10. A Gallup official said, quote, There is much to be learned from Latin America. While they aren't the wealthiest people in the world, they are certainly among the happiest. The bottom three countries on the list were Bangladesh, Tunisia, and Sudan. This has been a summary of some of the latest news headlines from America Latina. I'm Vilma V for Noticias Sin Fronteras and La Raza Chronicles. If you have a news item that you would like to share or have us track, email us at larazachronicles at kpfa.org. Todos juntos para demostrar que el latino quiere labrarse un futuro. Hay que tú y yo, somos hermanos, tenemos pasaporte latinoamericano. You're listening to Crónicas de la Raza, La Raza Chronicles on KPFA. I'm your host, Vanessa Bohm, and I'm joined on the line by local organizer and activist Nancy Hernandez, who has been a part of the movement for justice for the youth, Alex Nieto, who was killed by San Francisco police last year. Yesterday marked the one-year anniversary of this very tragic event and also the continued fight to hold San Francisco police accountable for his killing. Thank you, Nancy, for joining us this evening. It's nice to be here. Thank you. Well, Nancy, for those folks who are just hearing about the case of Alex Nieto, can you briefly tell us who he was and what happened last year when he was fatally shot by San Francisco police? So 
Sure. Alex Nieto was a 28-year-old young man who grew up in San Francisco in Bernal Heights in the Mission. Um, he was attending City College in San Francisco, which is where I got to know him. He was taking classes in criminal justice uh, with the intention to become a probation officer and help young people get out of trouble. He was mentored by a bunch of different local youth organizations, um, the Bernal Heights Neighborhood Center, United Players, the Excelsior Teen Center, and lots of different youth groups that he volunteered with. And he was working as a security guard and was on a break. So last year, this SSPD approached him while he was eating his lunch on top of Bernal Hill because they were called by a dog walker who saw a Latino man who was armed and they thought looked suspicious. When the officers approached him with their weapons drawn and he was holding a bag of chips uh, and eating, they shot 59 bullets at him. Um, many of them hit him after he had already hit the ground. And the community since then has been, first of all, trying to say that he was a good person and that he had the right to live when the media has really been slandering him, as is what happens with every police officer involved shooting. And we've been just trying to get the names of the officers for nine months and then trying to get an outside investigation of the SFPD. Uh, we were given an answer by Greg Sir and also Gascon, the SFDA, recently saying that there'll be no indictment and that the officers were acting within their right. So yesterday was a huge action to say that even if the system is not going to put them on trial, the people will. That's right. Yesterday, folks came out to show the police department that they had not forgotten about Alex, and that was through some very powerful direct actions. Tell us about what happened yesterday and how the police department responded. So the whole weekend has been amazing. There was um, a huge ceremony on Saturday on Bernal Hill where the um, active violence took place, trying to repair some of the energy there and, and give healing to the family. There was also a lowrider car show that went all up and down Mission Street to the water. Um, and then there was a film premiere on Saturday night. Then Monday morning, the first day of work after that, business as usual was completely shut down in the mission. The Valencia Street corridor was blockaded by protesters and the police station was shut down. Individual locked themselves to the gate so that police cars could not enter or exit the building and a tech bus was stopped by activists and blockaded to call into attention the link of gentrification to the violence that's been happening in the Mission District. And as that space was held by activists for four hours and 15 minutes, um, we were able to enact a people's trial where activists locked themselves into devices and played out a trial of the four officers um, in front of the police station. I know I saw photos of all of that taking place in front of the police department, and it looked really amazing and extremely powerful. There's been a lot of media attention on it and a lot of pictures, and we're asking folks to check out the photos and repost them on social media and share the story. People want to look for those photos. They can check the hashtag justice for Alex Nieto with the number four. Um, and we also wanted to call into attention, as, as all of this momentum was building up, that uh, Alex is not the only person who's been killed in SF. Um, we, we were talking about O'Shane Evans. His family was there. We were showing pictures of him and telling his story. We also had Idris Deli's mother there to speak and talking about his case. And so we're, we're basically trying to hold up local faces as examples of a national epidemic of police brutality and racism. And that as we're calling for justice for Alex, we're also saying we, we believe that Black Lives Matter and that police impunity needs to stop. Well, thank you so much, Nancy, for speaking with us this evening. 
just to end here, how can folks get involved in the movement for justice for Alex and the many others who have been killed by police and or get more information about the work that you all are doing? I know that there's a big event coming up in the Bay Area on April 14th, which is going to be talking about police violence. So folks can check that out. And then also, if you want to get more information on Alex's case, there's all of the evidence that we would have presented had there been able to be an actual real trial is all available on the website, justiceforalexnieto.org. Great. Thank you again, Nancy, for speaking with us this evening about this very important case that is both tragic and disheartening but also inspiring to see how people come together to make sure that the death of Alex Nieto and the many others is not in vain and that there's hope that justice indeed is possible. Muchísimas gracias. Listening to La Raza Chronicles, Cronicas de la Raza. I'm Julieta Kusnid, and we are really lucky to have some powerful voices joining us here in studio. We have some folks that are here to talk to us about a very exciting event. We have Pablo Paredes, who is an organizer with 67 Sueños. And we also have Arles Garcia, who's a youth leader making things happen and is also a part of this very powerful event, which is called Black and Brown Showcase. It's happening Friday, March 27th, and it's going to be an opportunity for community building, for art, for expression, for joy. It'll be a great event with spoken word, an auction, a bunch of youth art and video, and really an opportunity for people to feel a lot of hope and change for what's possible. So thank you both so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us on the show. We're really excited to share our work, and I'm excited to have Arliss on the radio for the first time here. So, Pablo Paredes, you have been working with 67 Sueños. Why don't you start us off by giving us some background on what 67 is all about? Sure. 67 Sueños was born around 2010. And at that time, uh, in the immigrant rights movement, all of the attention had about shifted from calls for some form of comprehensive immigration reform down to a more piecemeal approach. It had become sort of the the beltway thinking that no chance existed anymore for comprehensive immigration reform. And so the best bet that folks in the immigrant rights movement had to actually land some policy was going to be to to kind of look for a more piecemeal approach. And during this period, the DREAM Act became a piece of legislation that stood at the heart of every conversation, it seemed like, being had across the nation in movements. The DREAM Act was a piece of legislation that offered a path to legalization to undocumented youth, and there were certain criteria they had to meet. 
a lot of folks felt like it was great. It was going to be the one way that at least the, the youth would be able to legalize their status, and it was a step forward. Um, not a lot of attention was paid to the fact that the DREAM Act was written in such a way that, in fact, most undocumented youth didn't qualify for it. You had to have the money to go to college on your own dime, and you had to be in a position to go to college. A lot of undocumented youth have to support their families, have to help, have to work, don't finish high school, don't have the money to pay for college, do not have access to federal financial aid, such as Pell Grants. And so it was really cost prohibitive. One study showed that about 67% of undocumented youth in the United States would not qualify for the DREAM Act. And that's kind of what we came out of. That's why the name is 67 Sueños. We were trying to say all these young folks who don't qualify also have dreams, also have value, also deserve human rights. And so we need to, to start talking about this issue in a way that includes the entire community. And I would say that since then, we've extended that to not just th think about how youth are excluded, but actually how parents are excluded, how undocumented workers of various kinds, domestic workers, day laborers are excluded from most of the ways that we envision policy shifts in the immigrant rights movement. That's the voice of Pablo Paredes. He is with 67 Sueños, which you all can look up on the Internet, see some great youth art, youth work happening there. You can also go to this great event to find out more, which is going to be on the 27th, Friday the 27th, from 6 to 9. And we'll hear a little bit more about that just a little later on. But first, let's go to Arles Garcia. So Arles, you are active with 67 Sueños. I'd love to hear about what 67 Sueños is about for you and what has your experience been like? Uh, thank you so much for having me here today. Um, like you said, my name is Aris Garcia. I am an intern at 67 Sueños. Since I got to 67 Sueños, I started learning new things that I didn't know. Like, for example, my background. As an undocumented student, I came to the United States for a successful life. My parents are undocumented, undocumented people. But since um, I got here to the United States, I started learning new things like uh, all the successful life that students can have here, the opportunities that the United States provides. And um, it's really difficult to get the opportunities that we have in the United States because since we are in the community students, we we don't have the opportunity that our citizens students have. But we are a youth group on, on San Francisco, which is called Citizens and Sueños. We are a group of youth people who have been working hard through years to show the people like the struggle they go daily by using murals, poems, and spoken words, all kind of do all kind of stuff that we do. We show videos. We are doing all kind of stuff. For example, like you say, the the showcase which is called the Black Brown Unity. We try and do this this showcase to show the people that we are making some way to make peace to become just one family because. We know that we are different color, but we are the same people. We are creating a whole family. We're not dividing people. So this group of youth people trying to make peace and love. Thank you so much. That's the voice of Arles Garcia. He is a youth leader with 67 Sueños, and 67 Sueños is really putting together so many different components to really do what Arles just mentioned, which is talk about the common struggles between black and brown people. And so thank you so much, Arles, for sharing your important words. 
So Pablo Paredes, this is something that you all aren't just dipping into. You're not just saying, oh, let's just throw this together. Black, brown, unity, why not? This is something you all are very committed to and have been working around for years. So there are a lot of issues affecting youth today. Why is this something that 67 Sueños has decided to focus so much time and energy around? Well, one of the things that, that I've seen looking around at the way we, we sometimes do movement work is that very often nonprofits tend to be issue-based, and then that, that leads us to, to these very siloed movement spaces that are issue-based. And often there's so many dots to connect, and we spend so much time talking about those dots but very little time doing work that we call our movement work that is really connecting those dots. And it becomes kind of an afterthought. And I think that that's really... A lot of times people see it as, oh, you know, I already have to do all this work and how can I do that on top of it? But actually what we're trying to do is find a way to, to really create a fabric that, that centers that sort of unity work, that cross-issue work that builds community and power. And then we don't have to think about it after we've done our program work. It is our program work. It is what we're trying to do. It is the way that we're trying to make change. So with the young folks, you know, they see the dots. Um, Most of our young folks live in East Oakland, a lot of them in deep East Oakland. This is the area of Oakland that has been for for some decades now a decidedly black-brown community, a decidedly low-income community where the city has given over 160 liquor licenses and shut down I don't know how many schools, Right, So it's very clear that the black and brown community is going through it. A lot of undocumented folks live in the deep. And what we see is that a lot of the issues come up, and maybe in slightly different shades and tones, but actually it's the same sort of system that's putting us through it. So our young folks will learn one week about Anastasio Rojas and how he was murdered by 18 Border Patrol agents and really connect with this undocumented brother who was doing nothing more than trying to feed his family, and he'd been racialized, discriminated against, and killed by the state and there is no justice in his case. And then the next week we'll be talking about Ferguson or we'll be talking about Oscar Grant and we'll see how the state does the exact same thing to young black men. And so the dots are really clear and really connected and the changes that are happening in the city affect black and brown youth. Um, They go to the same schools. They live in the same neighborhoods. So we don't want to do immigrant rights work from this point of view that that sort of pretends as though this this issue is, is neatly segregated from other issues. The communities are not segregated Black and brown folks live, eat, and and coexist together, and we struggle together historically and contemporarily. So we want to do this work in a way that honors that. And this year, we've really, really dedicated to that. After four years of really exploring the youth's history, their identities, how they got to be, things like the Bracero program, we decided the fifth year, the youth decided, because they always decide the theme of the murals, that we were going to focus on black-brown unity, that the time had come. You know, it was around the time that we saw all these things happening and, and the violence against black folks was really increasing. And that existed also in the brown community, but there was a certain invisibility about it. So we were asking ourselves, well, how do we talk about the issue that's also affecting this state violence issue in the brown community, all the border patrol you know, murders, all the police murders, of brown folks that go unspoken and also be in solidarity with our black kinfolk and say, we want to stand with you while we also lift up some of these stories. And so we decided we need to do this work because independently in places like Oakland, 
the brown community is something like a quarter of the population. The black community is something like a quarter of the population. So they, they, the system really loves it when we're not working together. But when we come together, we are fully half of the population. We no longer can be labeled a minority in any way, shape, or form. And so that mural that we were able to take on this summer on 86 and International, which please, I hope folks go by and, and really check it out and enjoy it. It's a beautiful project. We brought together black youth from Allen Temple's congregation, some of the brown youth from 67 Sueños, and some community youth as well. The artist, Francisco Sanchez, worked with Brother Kufu. And so we had black-brown unity from the artist to the youth working on it to the congregations involved. And it's just a beautiful mural with a lot of history. And, and it points in a new direction on how we can, we can resist and fight back together. That's the voice of Pablo Paredes. He works with 67 Sueños, and they are putting together this event Friday, March 27th. That's going to be at 314 East 10th Street, Oakland, California. So, Pablo, why don't you tell us a little bit more, Adles Garcia, just to give us some insight into some of the things happening at the event. Why don't you give us a little bit more information about what people can be sure to experience if they're able to attend? Absolutely. So this is our fifth time doing this, and I feel like we're starting to develop some expertise around it. Our youngsters have become some amazing, amazing spoken word artists. One of our youth was in the running for the Oakland Poet Nobel Laureate, um, Youth Laureate. Another one of our youth was asked to be the youth speaker at the Empowering Women of Color conference last year. Because of her poetry, she won a contest. So we have some really strong poets with some really strong stories that you can be sure are going to be on stage on that night. We also have some really well-edited videos of some of the work we've been doing. There's a great video to the beat of Tupac's changes showing the, the mural and the development of the mural. There's going to be another video about an action we did on December 18th around black and brown unity where we, we tried to lift up the stories of Anastasio and Eric Garner. We also have the privilege to be able to honor some of our elders on this night. So we're going to have Sister Elaine Brown, which sadly, too many folks that I talk to do not know who this woman is. And she is a woman who was the head of the Black Panther Party for three years. So we often learn in the history books about Huey P. Newton. We learn about Bobby Seale. We learn about a lot of the men that were involved in the movement. And we don't learn about these amazing mujeres who struggled and led. And, and it's hard for our young women to see themselves in leadership positions when they don't see those stories. So we have a lot of young women in the team and they stepped up and said, hey, we want to honor some of the folks that we don't usually hear about in this story. So we'll be able to honor Elaine Brown and she'll be in attendance. So please come through to, to meet this, this elder, this sister's led a whole life of struggle um, for her community. We're also going to honor Gabriel Hernandez, who's a brother who's done amazing work in Oakland and the Bay Area. And uh, again, often folks don't know, but um, he's the co-founder, I believe, of Youth Uprising, of Youth Together, a community group in a lot of the public schools is doing amazing work. The reason we have Unity Weeks in a lot of the public schools, which is a much-needed black-brown unity, tongue-in black-brown unity type uh, movement right now. Um, the brothers also started a day laborer center in Hayward and now is starting one in Oakland. So he's just behind the scenes doing a lot of amazing work. He's been a mentor to a lot of the leaders that were at the fight against the gang injunctions recently and other fights going back to Prop 187 here in California, especially here in the Bay Area. So we really want to honor our elders. Expect that. Expect great food. Expect good music. Um, we'll have some performances. So it's going to be a really powerful night and a very enjoyable night where we can celebrate black brown unity that was pablo paredes he's with 67 sueños we're talking about a great event happening friday 
March 27th. So, Adlis, you gave us some ideas about some of the things happening. What are you most looking forward to at the event? I'm excited about giving the message that we're working on, the message that we'll provide information that people they may not know, but the information that we are providing for the people. For example, like black people are getting killed by the police and people that are getting killed in the border. They may know about this kind of information, but they don't know how we can prevent this. That's why we are a group of youth that we want to prevent this. We don't want this to be happening anymore because it's affecting our lives. Our generations can be affected by this too. That's why we are making this kind of event to showcase the black and brown community that we are going to make this showcase about like speaking words, poems that we all provide, the experience that people go through, the struggle that they face, and all kind of stuff that we're going to be doing, showing videos, working hard. Like Pablo said, the mirrors that we do is to show the people, to show that we are doing something to make this to not happen anymore. We are doing those mirrors to show the people that we have a lot of struggles and we want those struggles to go away to make the community a better place for our people to live. That's what we do in this showcase. And I would like to invite all those people, the people that are hearing us to make this to happen because they are being helping us to make this come true. Thank you so much. That's the voice of Adles Garcia. He is a youth leader. He's working hard at 67 Sueños, making community change happen. Thank you for sharing with us about some of the work you all are doing. So, Pablo Paredes, is there anything else you think is important? Can you give folks just really quickly the rundown of anything else you think is important for folks to know about this upcoming event? Absolutely. So, if you're familiar with Laney College, the event is going to be roughly across the street from Laney College, right by the Oakland museum, very close to Lake Merritt Bart Station. We're going to make it really easy for folks. One of our creative youth came up with this outreach strategy where we're going to have chalk art clearly defining the place where the event's happening, and then scarab beetles and monarch butterfly stickers along the sidewalk from the Bart Station all the way to the event. So that's a little creativity in how we do things. The symbolism was in our mural. The scarab beetle has a lot of power and symbolism about transformation in, in African tradition because they they're born literally in, in dung and then become this beautiful beetle. And of course, the monarca has a lot of symbolism in the brown community, especially around migrant justice because of the migration and the transformation of this beautiful butterfly that migrates back and forth from North America to Mexico. And so we tried to throw that in there and, and help you find your way that way. It is a fundraiser, so we do ask the folks bring their checkbooks, their rich homies, and all that good stuff because we try to do this work and we try to do it in a grassroots way so that we don't have to depend on big grants or big foundations or city funding and we're able to actually work with undocumented youth and pay stipends to undocumented youth to lead this work and to make these murals happen. But we do that by asking the community to support these beautiful murals and the production of them. So the event will be a fundraiser. We'll have a silent auction, a raffle, some food on sale. It'll be delicious and it will keep with the theme of Black Brown Unity. So please come through and meet Arliss in person. Arles is a, a young Hondureño who really speaks to the situation right now, right? So many young folks have been forced from their home countries like Honduras, and they not only trek through that struggle and the trauma that comes with it, but they come here and they navigate language. And I think he's an example of how much potential there is in these young folks that we're so quick to criminalize when we create opportunities for them to integrate into our community and have their own voice and their own space. And they create beautiful art. They change their community quite literally. 
That was Pablo Paredes. He's talking about the great work that Alice Garcia is doing with 67 Sueños. They're both going to be at this event. Very proud to highlight all this incredible poetry, art, music that will be showcased. And again, that event is March 27th, and people can find out more at 67sueños.org. And how else can people find out more about the event? We are on Facebook. The Black Brown Unity Showcase is an event that is searchable. We do have a website. We're on Instagram. 67 Sueños so you can check us out on all that social media world and we're out there the old fashioned way too you should see our flyers and our posters in the community please please come through it's a Friday night and there's no better place to be in the town Muchísimas gracias a ustedes dos por estar con nosotros we really appreciate you bringing info about this event and the important work you all are doing Thank you thank you for having us really appreciate it Calavera, el que prende la candela, doy la luz como Mandela, ya saben que yo soy un good fella, el que te mata en un freestyle, porque yo soy tu papa, you be my child, in the meanwhile, we in the lab reaching for a greater high, where we see the northern lights out here, we call it laser sky, somos los vagabundos de la música, banged out of fans with their shirts saying, sueña, sueña conmigo, sueña, sueña. No es por ser cobarde 
falta de razón que me quiera yo escapar de este viento que me aleja y no me deja by local singer Diana Gameros off of her album Diana Gameros. She will be in concert with the Oakland East Bay Symphony this Friday, March 27th at 8 p.m. at the Paramount Theater in Oakland. This is Nina Serrano for La Raza Chronicles. 
We're very excited today because we have in the studio Michael Morgan, the conductor of the Oakland East Bay Symphony, and our very own Diana Gameros. You've heard her before, either on her CD or we have her in for a guest. And Michael Morgan is a renowned member of the world music community. And they're here to tell us about this new program they're putting on called Notes from Mexico. Welcome, welcome. Bienvenidos, Michael. Thank you. Thank you very much. And bienvenidos, Diana. Gracias. It's really exciting that you're both here. Can you tell us, Michael, how you came to this concept of Notes from Mexico? Well, this is actually one in a series of concerts we've been doing for several years that are Notes from Somewhere. We've done notes from Persia, we've done notes from Armenia, we've done notes from China, notes from the Middle East, India. Next year we're doing notes from Vietnam. And the idea is that we not only do we put the spotlight on music from a given part of the world, but we also embrace the community that lives here. The music is always connected to a segment of our community with which we would like to be better connected. So this week, it's notes from notes from Mexico. Frequently, the music is a combination of music from the community we're featuring and some standard repertory. But frankly, there's so much music from Mexico that, that we filled the entire concert with, with a very wide range of pieces. So that concert is going to be this Friday night, March 27th at 8 p.m., and everyone is really looking forward to it. How did you come to find Diana? We met actually because through Magic Magic, right? Doing a show at, uh, at the Fox Theater with, uh, with Magic Magic Orchestra and about 10 different indie bands and, and artists all being accompanied by the strings of Magic Magic. And I heard her sing and I knew we were going to do this uh, Notes from Mexico concert this year. And uh, I think on the spot I said, you should come and sing <laughs> with us on this concert. And on the spot, I said yes. <laughs> <laughs> so was this a surprise to you, Deanna, for somebody who does folk-based indie music to be invited to perform with the symphony? Of course. I mean, I was I was so excited. And yeah, it was such an honor to be asked to, to play with them. And I mean, these are songs that are so dear to my heart that I just felt way, way too excited. When you say songs dear to your heart, which songs are you referring to? Uh, the songs that I'm going to do, that we're going to do on Friday, at least during my set, which are traditional songs that I learned from, you know, from my grandmother, literally, and my uncles and my mother, when we would get together for the holidays and sing with our guitars, everything really informal, but very, very passionate. And, and so some of these songs are... Uh, Mi Ranchito, Cancion Mixteca, just songs that everybody could even sing along to. At least if you're Mexican, you definitely know these songs. So you said your whole family would sing these songs. Did you come from a musical family? Yes. I mean, I was the first one to take, you know, to take music more seriously and attend, you know, lessons and attend and go to a music school. So everybody was very talented. In fact, my mother is a really great singer. Um, so is my uncle. And they all play instruments just very informally. And yeah, but music was always present at home. And Michael, were you raised in a musical family? There was music around. The music seems to come from my mother's wing of the family. My mother and grandmother were, were both, you know, played piano in church and things, but no one went into music seriously, per se. We happened to get a piano because my father bought one off of a neighbor 
who was moving away, and he had no idea whether I would ever really use it or not. This was, he bought it when I was about, I guess, six or so. And that really started the whole thing, but I'm the first, I'm the only, you know, professional musician in the family, or serious musician. And so did you immediately take to this piano? Well, I started the way I, I actually encourage now. A lot of the times parents will ask me, well, how do I get my child started on a given instrument? And I suggest to them that if they can find a way to make it the way my piano was, my piano was sort of the most complicated toy that I owned. And so Mm -hmm. I started just playing around on it. So then after you play around on it, you want to then learn to play it for real. And that's when you start taking lessons, et cetera. So I always uh, advise parents that if they can find a way to to get an instrument or piano into the hands of a child so that they can just think of it as a toy, then things will take off from there. So you weren't the kind of child that had to be nagged to practice? Uh, no, I actually wish I'd practiced more. I uh, was never, almost immediately wasn't planning to be a pianist. I got interested in conducting very early. But I certainly spent a lot of time playing the playing the piano. I actually think I play it more now than I used to when I was growing up because I was really a conductor first and foremost from a pretty early age. So how does a person even conceive of being a conductor? You said your mother and grandmother played in the church. The thing about my father was that that he made sure we were exposed to everything. So there were recordings of all kinds, all kinds of music in the house. And apparently I would borrow, I, I gravitated towards the classical and would, would borrow the recordings, the you know, the records they had and play them on my, you know, child's phonograph. And uh, my father always used to talk about how he would ruin all of his records, but I was so interested he would just let that happen. <laughs> so you were like a little boy with a stick in front of the record playing? Not even a stick, a pencil to begin with. And one of my uncles got me an actual baton from a music store, and that's when I, I that was the first real baton I ever had. And when was the first time that you actually saw somebody conducting live? Well, I don't know when I saw someone conducting live, but I saw someone conducting on television, and that's what in, that first interested me in the whole business of conducting, uh, because I couldn't figure out what the person was doing. And so I asked you know, older cousins what, who played in bands and things at school um, what the conductor does, and they said the conductor gives the, 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 conductor gives the orchestra the beat. And I thought this was the easiest thing I ever heard of. All you had to do was give the orchestra the beat, and that's your entire job. Uh, And so I gravitated towards that because of the way it looked initially. And then I was fortunate enough to have a series of of people, teachers, et cetera, who took that interest seriously and started teaching me what you actually have to do in order to be a conductor. Well, what exactly does a conductor do? (laughs) Well, (laughs) a lot of it is uh, there's a lot of planning. There's a lot that goes on behind the scenes. But what you see in the concert is coordination above all, but also unifying the approach of everyone on the on the stage. You hope you're inspiring. You really have to be unifying so that people can simply play together. That many people cannot play together without someone giving the signal at the very least when to start and when to stop. And so when we see in concerts and especially in movies when you see the close-up of the conductor and he has them get very little and very big and he himself is filled with emotion, is that Part of that That's absolutely part of it. It's it's the conductor's job. Otherwise, you you could just set a metronome there, but uh, and let let that 
give the beats to everyone, but the conductor's job is also to convey to the orchestra how the music is supposed to feel at a, any given point. To the extent that they don't that they don't feel it themselves, that is, that that they need an extra boost of energy that should come from the conductor. The unifying of the of the vision of the organization that should come from the conductor, and that's what all the extra stuff is. All the extra moving around and jumping around that we do is how the music feels. And so, how did you come to find these other Mexican musicians beyond Diana that go off into the modern classical field? The three composers, the three classical. So if you want to call it that, composers on the program, uh, Carlos Chavez ran the National Conservatory back in the 30s, 40s, and was teacher, mentor, etc., to both Moncayo and uh, Revueltas. So these guys are all actually related. And what's interesting is that while the uh, Moncayo and the Revueltas pieces are rhythmically driven, the uh, Revueltas is perhaps a, a more contemporary, more complicated uh, harmonically than the than the Moncayo uh, Huapango. But that's one side of classical music in, in Mexico. But then the Chavez Piano Concerto is a mid-century, very complicated, very densely written piece for piano and orchestra that frankly isn't played very much. For one of the reasons, it's very difficult. And so you have to actually plan the rest of the program around having what you hope is enough time to actually learn it. Do you feel that bringing together Diana and this classical music gives a a whole overview of Mexican music or an introduction into music of Mexico? Well, that's the idea, is to get an overview and to, and to show just, even within these few pieces that we're doing, how wide the range is. I mean, there's more in all directions of music uh, from Mexico, but this gives you an idea of just how, you know, when we, a lot of people, when they think Mexican music, they have a very limited, it's very limited what they think in terms of music that comes out of, of Mexico. And actually, there's very great breadth of music that comes comes from that country and comes from a, just a wide range of artists. And this just begins to show you how far afield some of these uh, some of these things are. And yet at the same time, even in the dense contemporary Chavez piano concerto, in the last movement, you get the rhythms that you expect in music from Mexico. Uh, you, you still feel the connection. You feel the roots back, back in uh, Mexican folk music. And you're also going to be having a local dance troupe, Ballet Folklorico Mexicano de Carlos Morenos, performing. And if people want tickets... They'll have to go to OEBS, that's Oakland East Bay Symphony dot org to order tickets. And I think you better hurry because the concert is this Friday, March 27th at 8 p.m. At the Paramount Theater. At the popular Paramount Theater. But you have to get tickets through the Oakland East Bay Symphony. We do our own ticketing now. Oh, you can't get tickets you, at you the box office? You don't office? go to the box office of the Paramount now. We're, our offices are one block from the Paramount, so if you happen to wander in there, they will direct you to our offices. But we handle the tickets ourselves. So calling the office or going online is definitely the way to go to to figure out how to get tickets. So that's oebs.org, oaklandeastbaysymphony.org, and the phone number is 510-444-0802. And now let's hear a song from Diana Gameros.
tiene olor a que alguien murió prende la vela hijita no llegues tarde estelita que la noche te alcanza y no te vuelvo a ver y no te vuelvo a ver
dirán que la vida va bien. You have been listening to Diana Gameros, and her song is En Juárez, and it's from her album Diana Gameros. You've been listening to La Raza Chronicles Crónicas de la Raza on KPFA 94.1 FM in Berkeley. Tonight's program featured music by local band Bang Data with music off of their latest album Mucho Poco and local musician Diana Gameros off of her album Diana Gameros. If you want to hear this program again or share it with others, check us out on kpfa.org or on SoundCloud. Just search for La Raza Chronicles. Stay tuned next week, Tuesday at 7 p.m. for more of La Raza Chronicles Crónicas de la Raza. Don't forget to like us on Facebook for updates on Latino news, arts, culture, and music. Hasta la próxima. Buenas noches. <laughs>